You're listening to TIP. Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Nabil Ayers. He's a professional musician. He's a successful entrepreneur. He's the head of 4AD, a major independent music label in New York City. And he's a gifted writer. He's been published in the New York Times, in NPR, and Viking Press is going to publish his memoir. This is a real treat for me because Nabil is a longtime friend, and I've always admired how he's followed his own path in life. In many ways, he exemplifies so much of what we talk about on this show. There's a theme of music and creativity that runs throughout his life and career. We talk about how he listens to an inner voice that has guided him through major decisions and career transitions. We also discuss what it means to follow your passion and how that's played out in his life how he channels his creativity, and how writing has changed how he experiences the day-to-day. This is a fun one. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nabil as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Nabil Ayers. You're listening to The Good Life by the Investors Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and values that help you live a meaningful, purposeful life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Nabil, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. Well, Nabil, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. You're working on a memoir to be published by Viking Press in 2021, and I know we're going to get into that and your writing career, but I've known you for over 30 years. We, of course, met in college at the University of Puget Sound, and I always knew you as a musician, and you went on to be a professional musician, put out albums on major labels. You toured the U.S. and Europe. You opened a successful music store, actually a chain of stores in Seattle called Sonic Boom. You created your own record label and produced bands. Now you're the head of the U.S. head of one of the biggest independent music labels, 4AD, which produces the National and Future Islands and Grimes, to name a few recent artists, but also some longtime favorites too, like, like the Pixies. So your career involves music, writing, creativity, entrepreneurship, You've lived what I would call a flourishing life, and I'm looking forward to just talking about it. So, so let's get started with your history and background and how you got to where you are today. So start wherever you want, Nabil. Music has always been the thing in one way, shape, or form. And we, of course, met in college and ended up playing in a band together, which doesn't surprise me. You're a great bass player. And I was playing guitar at the time, which is funny because drums was my main instrument, but I ended up playing more guitar in college because I could bring my guitar to college and not bring my drums. So (laughs) I got better at guitar in those four and a half years. We can get into that later. But yeah, I kind of always, I think, wanted to both play in a band and was always interested in the business from a really young age. I think I kind of, you know, I remember looking at records when I was a kid and and not totally understanding, but noticing that they had labels on them and they're different brands like Impulse or Epic or Casablanca and that some of my, you know, some different bands have the same logos on their records. And so I might not have totally put it together, but I knew that it meant something. And so, you know, I grew up buying a lot of records, going to tons of shows, always playing in bands. And that's kind of what college was, you know, where we met. Fast forward to that was, I was a pretty poor student, but it's not that I wasn't motivated. It's just that I was motivated by other things where (laughs) I didn't get grades, but 
I was playing in bands and I, you know, putting out a CD by our band, which was a big deal in the early nineties to be able to do and, you know, putting on parties and DJing at KUPS, our radio station, kind of everything that applies to what I'm doing now. But at the time, I think I was seen as kind of a party slacker dude and ended up right after college joining a couple of bands. Neither of that was like, you know, famous, successful, but successful enough that we signed to major record labels and toured a lot and made records and really had a great time and, and also worked in record stores and ended up opening my own record store called Sonic Boom in Seattle with a partner in 1997, which is also a long time ago, and started my own small record label called The Control Group, where I continue to put out records by bands. And then for the last 12 years, which is crazy, I've been the general manager at 4AD, which is a pretty big British independent label. I run the American office here in New York. So it's all related, even though it's been diverse, as you say, you know, it all, it all makes sense to me at least. Yeah. Music is a theme that runs through that. So does creativity. So does following your passion. And now you are also embarking on a writing career, which I want to get into as well. You've followed your passion yet continued to find different outlets for your creativity. Let's talk about what were your influences? Was music a part of your childhood and what kind of guided you towards music and just creativity? Absolutely. From literally the second I was born, from before I was born, I think it was part of my childhood. Always interested in music, of course, but I mean, my mother was pretty young when she had me. She was 22. She's a ballet dancer, doesn't play music, but is still into music and very influenced by music. And dance to me is very rhythmic and obviously related. And her younger brother, my uncle, who I'm still super close to, is kind of my father figure. I never really knew my father. And that's kind of what the book is about, but we'll get into that later. My father's also a musician, so I think it's at least in my DNA, if not from a direct influence. So from literally as long as I can remember, there were always records playing in wherever we lived, the apartment. My uncle was always practicing saxophone. He's a jazz saxophone player. You know, he would practice for four hours straight. It would just be there. It wasn't like, oh, he's practicing. It was like the way that you hear traffic or your kids or something. It was just something that happened every day. So it was just ingrained in my head. Went to a lot of concerts from a really young age, especially because, you know, when I was young, I was in like New York and Boston and Amherst, Massachusetts. There were tons of free concerts and we were kind of just hippies. So we would go to things. And a lot of the time they were my mom's friends or my uncle's friends. So really just completely surrounded by music at a really young age. My uncle bought me a drum set when I was two because I was already kind of playing on pots and pans and things. So I think that obviously led to me becoming a drummer. And I was pretty much self-taught. I mean, I would just play and listen to records and play along and kind of figure out how to do it. And there's actually some pretty amazing recordings of me and him when I'm three, I think. And I can play kind of. You could, there's rhythm. There, there are things there. And I'm being really bossy. You can hear me talking and telling him that he's playing songs wrong with him from Sesame Street and stuff like that. But yes, I can't remember a time when anyone taught me anything about music or taught me music or when I didn't know about music. It's just always been there. And that's it. And then it's been more about kind of developing that and who I've been around from then on. So how did you take that passion for music and you know, coming out of college, find your way into bands and forming this iconic right. record store, which is, you know, was voted, I think, one of the best record stores in America? So talk a little bit about that part of your career. I always was aware that there was a business surrounding it. And for some reason, I've always had this sort of entrepreneurial instinct, I guess, or interest. I mean, I can trace it back. I can pair everything to having a lemonade stand and you'll probably get this. But you know, the idea is you buy something, you buy this thing of frozen lemonade for a dollar, you make, you know, whatever that makes a pitcher, you're able to sell 
20 cups for 25 cents. I'm not doing the math right now, but you know, and you come out having made $4 or whatever, and that's enough to then do it the next day. And then maybe you make more, you know, it's things like that were very logical to me. I got it. Like I need to sell four cups to break even. I need to sell eight cups to double my money. I always liked that. And I like the idea, you know, we really, really poor when I was a kid, but that's the kind of thing where if I did enough of that, I could buy a record that week. It was always tied to music in that way. But I also remember putting on a concert when I was really young with two of my friends. We learned a couple songs. We were terrible. We just played along with the record. We didn't really learn them, but we sold tickets for a dollar to the neighbors and split the money. And that is the music business or that's business or and everything else is just a fancier extension of that. So I think I always had a natural gravitation towards that part of it where I think a lot of artists are sort of known as like, oh, well, they're just an artist. They're not going to understand that part. They shouldn't even have to deal with it. And I'm one of those people that is the opposite and almost to the point where I feel like I'm a business person who is lucky to be involved in the music part so heavily more than I'm a musician who got lucky to be in the business. And if, if anything, I'm really happy with where I am in the business, but I wish that I'd sort of followed the just the music a bit more in my life. That's the one sort of regret, but it's not a serious regret. Well, I always see you as kind of spanning multiple genres, your music, your business. You have a mixed racial identity. You're East Coast, you're West Coast. You seem to be able to, because uh, you lived Mountain in Seattle. Mountain time too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. uh, Salt Lake City. So, so Nabil yeah. lived in Seattle for many years, now he lives in New York City. So this record store, Sonic Boom, you're in your mid-20s. You start this store. Where did you come up with the capital? How did you get it going? What were you thinking right. at the time? Did you have a vision or were you just kind of following your passion or what? The real story is, it's pretty simple. I mean, I got out of college. That was a time when it, it wasn't that hard to get a job out of college, I don't think. I think if you really wanted to, you know, we we're in the Seattle area. There are a lot of kids I knew who went to work for Boeing or Microsoft or like even like these big six accounting firms. Not, I wasn't an accounting major, so I couldn't have done that. I think it would have been possible to get a job within a year of coming out of college, which I think is not necessarily the case now. But that idea really scared me. And I was like, I know I have this degree from this great college, but I don't want to just go get a job and start working for somebody. And I want to do these things that I want to do. And, it's not, and there's just seriously something in me that said, don't do that. Just make enough money to pay your rent. And so I you know, kept like a very collegiate type roommate situation after college, lived in a really dumpy house in West Seattle and paid $154 a month rent. There were five of us in this house, one bathroom two bands practice in the basement. And I worked at a temp agency a couple of days a week just to make enough to go to shows and do what I wanted to do. And then got a job at a record store, Easy Street, which is still a great store in West Seattle. And that was really fun. And that was like my first record store job, which was incredible in and of itself. But I was also the person at the store who was responsible for dealing with all the label people because I'd had an internship in college at Polygram, which at the time now been absorbed into Universal, but was one of the big major labels. So my boss at the record store is like, oh, since you worked at a record label, you should be the person that fields the calls when someone wants to know how many Metallica CDs we sold that week. Or when someone in the store wants to be on the guest list for a show, they ask you and you call the label. So I was that person. So I got to know everybody because Easy Street was kind of an important store and Seattle was definitely an important city. So that was really fun. And then, you know, but at the same time, I was playing in bands and then I would leave and tour and come back and everything. And the record store is perfect for that. And I made good friends with a guy named Jason Hughes, who also worked at Easy Street with me. And he was a DJ at KCMU, which is now KXP. And he was a DJ at the end. And similar thing. He'd graduated from Berkeley, didn't want a real job. We were both working in a record store. And, you know, on my breaks, I loved my job and I worked really hard and did everything I was supposed to at Easy Street, but I didn't go above and beyond. 
And Jason, on the other hand, really went above and beyond and would like put his heart and soul into it. And he came to me once and he was like, look, you know, I'm busting my ass here, but you're kind of just doing what you're supposed to do. You know, I think he was just like curious. He's like, what's up with that? And my answer was like, look, I love this job. This is great, but I'm reserving all of my free time and energy for the things that I want to do for myself, not for my $8 an hour job. And, you know, and again, to make it perfectly clear, I loved that job. I did everything I was supposed to, but I wasn't pouring my heart into it. I was pouring my heart into other things. And at that moment, I remember Jason was like, I thought about it. And he said, you and I should open a record store. It's this quick conversation. And to his credit, we always used to tell people this because most people who own record stores had a dream to own a record store. And we didn't have that dream. We both loved music and we both worked in a record store, but it was, I think, just something we were doing as a springboard to whatever was going to be next. And, you know, Seattle at the time had a lot of record stores, a lot of really good ones. But, you know, we started thinking about it, you know, the logistics and especially you're into business stuff. So we went to a bar that night, we had some drinks and we literally wrote on a napkin. It's going to cost our first rent. So we found a place, we decided that Fremont, which was I think a much cooler neighborhood then in the early 90s. It's kind of this bohemian, small, almost village in Seattle, about 10 or 15 minutes north of downtown. Really great, just like cool people, artsy vibe and everything. And this is kind of before it got infiltrated and kind of got less good. So we were like, Fremont's the only neighborhood in Seattle that really feels like it could support a record store, but doesn't have one. I actually lived in Fremont at the time. So we just went walking around talking to everyone who owned every business. They're all small businesses who all were thrilled to talk to us and the idea that we might open a record store in the neighborhood. So it was really like very cool community. And we just walked around and introduced ourselves to everybody and said, here's what we're doing. Do you know of any places or call us if you do? And sure enough, pretty quickly, a space popped up and this guy, Bill, was our landlord. It was the main floor of a house. Pretty small our rent was $1,500. So I remember that what we did is we sat there with a napkin. We said, okay, we figured out our monthly expenses, $1,500 rent, zero employees. It's going to cost a bunch of money to bring in the first wave of stock that we need to sell. We have to build some bins. We need a sign. We need a phone. We need insurance. And that's about it. I mean, it was such a minimal list. It was a really small, you know, it was like the size of a big living room in a house. And we looked at it and then we did the opposite. We we're like, okay, so that means we need to make this much a month do that. And then let's break that down to a week. Let's break it down to a day. And then let's break it down to a business hour. And so we're like, you know, so it looks like to make that nut, we need to sell four CDs, one LP and one used record or something an hour. And we both looked and we're like, I think we could do that. And that was our business plan. (laughs) And so we we signed this lease. It cost $30,000 to open the store. Jason's mom gave us a loan for probably half and the rest went on credit cards and that was it. And we seriously just did it. And it took tons of, it was a very like friend community effort. We had people come help us with everything from like painting the place to building the bins to doing whatever, you know, I think we like each worked 13 days in a row and then took one day off. I moved to New York in 2008. So after 11 years, but we owned the store till 2016 when we sold it. But looking back, I mean, eventually it grew and we did really well, but the most fun times, and I think most people with most businesses will tell you that were like those first year or two when it was such a struggle. There would be three hours and nobody would come in the store. It would be raining, you know, dark at 2 p.m. or whatever happened in Seattle. Looking back, and we were making no money, of course. We were splitting lunches from the Thai place down the street. We were trading with everyone in the neighborhood for beer, for food or whatever. And those were the best times. That's such a great story. Yeah. You had a passion for it and you made it happen. The early 90s up through even 97, grunge was really taking off, especially in the early 90s. One time in college, you came back to 
the dorm we were in and I said, where were you? And you said, I was at the record release party of this really cool band. I was like, well, what's it called? You said Nirvana. I said, are they good? <laughs> yeah, they're really good. You know, <laughs> I mean, those kinds of things happened back then. Did different artists drop in? Like, I don't know, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Easy Street was really where we worked before that. Easy Street was the grunge store because they were open then during those years. And a lot of those guys lived in West Seattle too. So Eddie Vedder came in the store all the time. Chris Cornell came in the store all the time. And those were, you know, two of the biggest rock stars in the world. And those guys would come in and buy records and they were great and they were super nice guys. And so by the time we opened Sonic Boom, it was 97, it was late 97. So it was changing a bit. That stuff had calmed down a bit and it was getting into indie rock, I guess, for lack of a better term. But we always compared it because that just sort of naturally became our thing. And it was like, you know, the people who shopped at the store then in the late 90s and early 2000s were Modest Mouse and Death Cab for Cutie and Harvey Danger and Pedro the Lion and all those Seattle bands, that next wave of sort of indie rock. So that became our thing. And that was, those were our customers and those are the people who played in the store. And we kind of became known for that. It wasn't as superstar as the other people, but it's still really fun. And it was fun to be part of it as that scene built up and became something. So you had this business at Sonic Boom, a record store. You were also playing in bands at the time and producing your own records. So talk a little bit about those two other aspects of your kind of creative outlets at the time. Yeah, the sort of juggling part of it. I think it's just always something I've done. It's fun to have different outlets and different things, even if they're related, which they all were, obviously. But I mean, same thing. I remember having a conversation with Jason when we were like, whatever, we're going to sign this lease and do all these things and really commit to this. And I was like, no, that sort of my first priority is still to be in a band. And I think at the time, I was in a band called Micromini that never took off, but we had interest from major labels and we were doing well in Seattle and all that stuff. So the hope was that we would, and that way it would be in a band that was on tour all the time. And I, I wanted to make it clear, like, that's something I'm trying to do, and this won't change that. And Jason was always really cool with that. And his thing was like, look, you need to be around for these first few months to get it off the ground, and then we'll figure it out. And that's what happened. And Micromini didn't blow up, but I ended up starting other bands and everything. I'm sure it was stressful for Jason, but it was also stressful for me to leave for a month because I would still try to do some of my work, which was the more kind of, you know, Jason was definitely the more day-to-day and financial guy at the store. And I was more the kind of promo dealing with the labels because obviously that's what I've done in Easy Street. That's kind of, you know, the more, I guess, I don't know, social, I would sell the advertising, all that kind of stuff. So I'd still do that when I was on tour. And that was hard in the late 90s plugging a laptop into a motel (laughs) dial-up internet connection (laughs) trying to send through an album cover or whatever, like that kind of stuff. So, but you know, we made it work and eventually we hired employees and then we opened another store and everything. But yeah, so there was the band stuff. And then at the time I was also putting out albums on just like, yeah, my small label. And it was a band I was in called Alien Crime Syndicate, but I would also put out and still do on my own, put out records by other bands, Seattle bands who were friends or Seattle bands who I liked and became friends. And that was just always something that was exciting to do. Let's fast forward a little bit. So you you have the record store, you've got the label, you're putting out your own stuff, you're playing in the band. How do you make the jump to running a label in New York City? So this comes later. This is, I guess, but you know, things hadn't changed that much. It's maybe in 2006 now. And I put out a bunch of records by Seattle bands on my own label, which is called The Control Group. And many had gone well. I mean, it was a time, I think I picked cool things to put out, but also it was just such an exciting time in Seattle when a local band could sell a thousand CDs in Seattle, which is crazy. And that would not happen now, but just from playing shows and being a good local band. And so 
I put out some of those records and some of those bands got bigger and toured and signed to bigger labels and things, but that was happening. And then it, it turned into less of a Seattle thing when a friend of mine played me this band from Denmark called Figurines. He's like, I think you'd really like this. I just saw them in Germany and I listened to it and I freaked out over it and just had that feeling that, you know, you still get sometimes. And I uh, got a hold of the band, I think on MySpace, because that's <laughs> what you do in 2006. And just started emailing with them. And, and that was also a time when, you know, because now everything is obviously online at the same time. But then it was possible, you know, this band had had albums out in Europe, but not in America, which doesn't really happen now. Now you just put your album out and it's on Spotify everywhere. But then I was like, I would like to put out your record in America. So I signed them and it did well. And that was the first, not only non-Seattle, but international thing that I'd had. And they came and toured and they got funding from the Danish government, which was great. So, it, you know, it all really worked and they, it became kind of a thing. And that led to another friend of mine saying like, oh, you like Scandinavian bands. Have you heard this woman, El Perro Del Mar from Sweden? And I hadn't. And El Perro Del Mar was looking for an American record deal. And she was really great. And she still is great. And this is 15 years ago. And I just put out her sixth record or something. <laughs> it's really been working with her this whole time. Put that record out. And that did really well. So suddenly, it's sort of a real label. Just by virtue of the fact that I put out two albums by international artists and now people in New York are writing about it and radio stations and other places are playing it. So that was a big jump for the label and was really exciting. And then the band I was in with The Long Winters, which is the most recent band I've been in, I joined that band when it was already off the ground. They'd done all the hard work. I mean, that's the drummer gets to do that a lot because drummers leave bands. So, <laughs> so I joined the band in like, I don't know, 2005. We recorded an album that came out in 2006, toured a lot, a few European tours, which was really fun. The Long Winters did well in a lot of those places. So so that was all happening, but that was also kind of that tour cycle is winding down. And then Sonic Boom was just Sonic Boom. And we had like three stores and 23 employees and it was kind of a lot, but it was really successful and really fun. And my plan suddenly, you know, the store felt like it was at least like not coasting, but it was, we weren't planning on building anymore. In fact, I think maybe we were closing the Fremont store soon because by then that neighborhood had changed drastically enough that it just really wasn't working. It was getting too expensive, but the business wasn't increasing. And we'd also opened in Ballard, which is only a mile and a half away. And that was going great. So we were like, let's keep that. Let's close Fremont. And by the way, I'm going to move to New York. <laughs> and, the, uh, and the story really was that, you know, I mean, I was born in New York. I love it. I have friends, family here, but I wanted to focus on my label. It felt like a, a really exciting opportunity when the band was winding down. I wasn't quitting, but we were going to not do anything for a while, maybe make a new record, but not tour. I could step away from the store. I didn't divest or anything, but sort of stepped away from day-to-day -day stuff. And the plan was to go to New York and work on the label. And that was at a time when it was really, I and mean, I still think it is, but really advantageous to be in New York where just kind of where everything was, the media center, you know, all the press, all the radio, my distributor, all the other labels. It's just like, if you wanted to really try to do it, you kind of had to be in New York, at least in America. And so that was my plan. And I saved up money, spent sort of a year slowly getting out of things in Seattle and moved 2008 in like August or September with the plan and the ability to do nothing but work on the control group, my own label for at least a year. And in my head, it was like, not only am I not looking for a job, if somebody approached me with a job, I'm not interested. This is what I'm doing. I can now work on it full time for the first time in my life. I have these records that have done really well. I have more things coming out. I was putting out the record by this woman, Licky Lee, that went great. And that was my plan. And I moved to New York and ran into someone at a party, I don't know, October, November, pretty soon after that, and kind of told him a shorter version of what I just told you. And he was like, yeah, great. And he worked for Beggars Group, which is the parent company over several great independent record labels, 4AD, XL, Rough Trade, Matador, 
and you know, people that I knew from the store and the labels that we dealt with all the time. And the next day he emailed me and said, Hey, I know you're not looking for a job, but 4AD is the only one of all the UK labels in the group who doesn't have a person in New York and they're looking for somebody currently. Would you be interested in even just hearing about it? And I was like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I know my plan is not to do this, but this is truly one of the best labels, if not the best record label in the world. This is a label that put out Pixies records when I was in high school. And like, you know, so many things that I love. What am I going to do? Not go talk to this person? All I have to do is go talk. Let me just go talk to him. So we had coffee and, and his thing was like, look, it's not me. I don't get to hire this person. I'm just, he runs the US office, but this, you know, Simon Halliday who runs 4AD in London. It's like, that's the person that you ultimately need to meet and who's been talking to people and who, you know, he's like, so here's the story. Here's what the job is and everything. Let me know if you want to know more, if you want me to put you in touch. And I kind of left like, yeah, let me think about it. And I was terrified. And I think it took me a second to realize what I was scared of. And I was like, why would I know how to run a real label that's been around for 30 years? I put out a couple of records by some Seattle bands and I own a record store, but like, I don't know how to do that. But I think really what the fear was that I'd never had a real job. And I started thinking about it. It was like, how, I've never had, I mean, I'd had like jobs in high school and after college, but not not a real job with a real boss and real accountability and even employees and all that stuff. And it, it kind of was like, I don't know if I could, you know, now in my thirties, can I do that for the first time after working for myself my whole career? But I decided to <laughs> get in touch and I had a few friends and people prodding me for sure. They're like, you're crazy to not be trying to do this. And they were right. So Matt put me in touch with Simon and we just had this great email dialogue that wasn't at all like, here is the job, send me your resume. Like it was nothing like that. It's more just about like, Simon's this great guy. And his first email was like, here is my story. What's yours kind of, and you know, meaning like I grew up listening to this and here's my career trajectory. And so I just kind of reciprocated and we ended up in this, this great dialogue about like music and life and career, but not at all related to this job specifically, but I think we really hit it off. And then finally, a couple months later, got to meet in person in New York and that's where it all just happened. And I started a couple of weeks later. <laughs> I've been there for 12 years. <laughs> wow. It's very fascinating because you were following something, something in your heart, your intuition. What happened when you stepped into that role? Did you have to really up your game for leadership? And did you take any lessons from either being in a band or running a record store? It's weird because it kind of got handed a team and luckily a great team and a team of a lot of people I already knew one of which was a former Sonic Boom employee, which is really funny. So it's, you know, it's a small world. So I think also one of my worries going into that job was like, they're all going to be pissed that they didn't get my job. And who is this guy coming in from a record store to suddenly run this? But it didn't feel like that at all. I think everyone and so many of those people still work there after 12 years. Those people are smart and committed and know what they're doing and so good at their thing, whether the thing is press or radio or marketing or whatever, you know, there's about 60 people in the New York office. So there's a lot of people who do very specific things very well. Wow. Managing 60 people, that's a big step. That's a big leap. Were there any lessons from being in a band or running the record store that you were then able to apply to help you be successful in your new role? I think more from the store. I mean, the, you know, the, the people thing was by far the hardest thing about the store. And I think Jason would say the same thing. And that's probably why it was the most fun times are when it was the two of us, when it was like, we might argue over something, but it was the two of us and we'd figure it out. But suddenly when you have 23 employees, <laughs> it was like, and also we didn't know what we were doing. And we're still like 28 and suddenly you have 23 employees and we just have a record store. So 
you know, when we started talking about health insurance and 401ks and wages and vacation time and really crazy things like grown up things that we weren't prepared to deal with at Sonic Boom. So I think we learned a ton going through that in real time with those people. And so much of it is just actually listening to people and truly listening to them and figuring out what makes them work and what sort of gives them the conditions for success because it's different for every person. So, you know, we couldn't look at every one of these 23 employees and be like, well, this is how it is and this is how you have to do it. Instead, I think we learned a lot from different people's work styles and making it work, if that makes sense. And I think it was kind of like that. There's different people now, but there's still a lot of people that I guess are accountable to me or report to me and they're all different there is no mold for like, this is how you have to do things. And I think it's important to realize that pretty early on. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Listening to people is so important. Then there's the whole component of listening to music. Maybe there's a connection there, but I want to continue moving through your career because you then make this jump or you're starting to make this movement into writing. So talk a little bit about how you got into writing. You're now published. You've got a book that's going to come out soon. So how did this transition come about? It's kind of crazy. I mean, weirdly in college, you know, I've, I've bragged like three times so far in this interview about what a poor student I was, but <laughs> I did get two A's and they were both in writing classes. And it wasn't because I worked harder in those classes. It was because I liked them and they were fun and they felt easy. I have no idea why. I just know that like, oh, these are great. And I, I did well for that reason, I guess. And so I think there's always been something there. And I know that my mother and her mother, my grandmother are both writers, neither published, but like both write a lot. And I've read a lot of their writing and my mom still sends me stuff all the time. And, you know, so I don't know if somehow it came down through that. Also, I will give a lot of credit to our liberal arts education. I remember when I went and visited UPS, their thing was like, we're not, it's a liberal arts school. We're not going to train you for a job. We're going to train you for life. And it sounded super cheesy, but I think it's kind of true. I mean, I think a lot of what I got in college is not just even my own thing where I was booking shows and DJing and everything. It's the socialization and it's being around smart, motivated people. That was a huge part of, you know, you get a lot just from osmosis, I think. And so I came out of college, did all the music things and everything and writing was not in the picture at all for a long time. And then I was in a band called The Lemons. This is like 95, 96. And I didn't smoke pot, but some of the guys in the band did. And we got busted with three and a half ounces of pot in our van in the Utah desert which was not a great scene, like really busted, handcuffed, the whole thing, taken to jail, the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) So I can laugh now because we got off, but it was a really crazy experience and there's tons of ins and outs. And luckily it was, you know, I'd gone to high school in Salt Lake City and this was Utah. So I was able to get a really incredible lawyer to represent the band through some friends and there's tons of privileged stuff going on here and everything. But we got this guy who just wiped the slate clean and got us off and it was great. But it's a really long, really weird story with tons of ins and outs. And I've told it so many times over the years and which is, I think has kept it really fresh in my memory. And so I was on a flight to London probably four or five years ago and just like was wide awake and had eight hours and didn't feel like watching movies and didn't have the internet and didn't feel like sleeping. And I was like, something was just like, you know, I think I should just write that story. I've told it so many times. I want it to exist. The plan is not to publish it or not to even show it to anyone. I just think it would be fun to just like tell it to a laptop. And so I started typing and got really into it. And then once I got to London, I was jet lagged, which means from New York, I would stay up really late every night. And so I just stay up. And then, you know, in 1995, the internet existed, but not in the way it does now. So five years ago, suddenly I was like building it out to more of this longer, like a year long part of my life and researching like, oh, weird, this is 
I could find a review of the concert in Cincinnati. So that's the date we played in Cincinnati. And it was like this research project, like putting together these dates and these places because all this suddenly was online. It was like this archive of a year of my life in a weird way. So I started writing more about even like the characters and the other members of the bands and remembering more stories about, you know, weird, funny things that happened on tour. I just had a great time putting it all on the page, so to speak. And when I got back from that trip, I'd written like 80 or 90 pages and I was blown away. I was like, I don't know what this is. It's not at all complete. and I don't want to show it to anyone. But what I do know is that there's obviously something I'm into. There's like this weird new hobby that's kind of tugging at me. <laughs> yeah. So I started, I think I started telling some friends and people were like, yeah, you should take a writing class. It's like, oh, that sounds interesting. I wonder if I could get into one. I didn't, you know, it was so far out of my head that I didn't realize that, you know, in New York, you can just sign up. And so I think I paid $400 and took a 10 week every Monday night from seven to 10 kind of thing. And there are like 12 people in the class. And we went and had a drink one of those nights, right? I, I remember that. Yeah, I <laughs> met you in New funny. York and you'd come from a yeah. writing class. I was like, Nabil, what's going on? You're writing now. Yeah. Well, every class started with like a half an hour sort of prompt, like, you know, whatever, write about this, write about the first time you were scared, you know, whatever, some kind of prompt. But it was the whole concept was like, and you can't stop writing. You just write for half an hour. No one's going to see it. Don't worry about it. It's just to get the kind of juices flowing. So you do that for 10 weeks and it, it starts to work. And so I was starting to write about other things. I was thinking about funny things in my life and more serious things in my life. And so I was writing about my father, who I've never known, or about Sonic Boom stuff and really funny stories from the first year that we had the store and no customers came in and all the wacky stuff that happened. Kind of just like all the stuff that was coming out of my head. It was all memoir. It was all, this was a memoir writing class. And I think that's what I'm interested in more than fiction. So that stuff was coming out. And then we sold Sonic Boom 2016 we sold it to a customer and great vibe. We were really happy. He was buying it. He was going to keep everything the same, keep the employees. And so, you know, our question was really like, how can we sort of announce this to the public in a positive way, put him in a good light, let everyone know that this is a great thing that's happening. And my idea was, you know, hey, I've, I've written a, a lot of sort of stories about the store in the early days. What if I kind of condensed that into a shorter comprehensive piece and The Stranger, which is the cool alt weekly in Seattle, they ran it and that was like sort of the announcement and Jason was cool with the idea and I showed it to him and everything. And so I emailed the stranger. We still knew everyone there, obviously, and they liked the idea too. And so that's when I got really scared because I was like, well, now I have to, I was like, well, do you want to read it? And they're like, well, yeah, sure. But like, yes, we'll just do it. So it was like this fear of like, well, I've written all these things, but like they haven't even seen it. They're just going to publish it. So I kind of rewrote some stuff and condensed it into this like 1500 word piece. It's like a kind of history of the store, but not really. Just some funny anecdotes. It's still there. And that came out. It's got incredible feedback. And it wasn't even so much, the feedback wasn't like, you're a great writer. The feedback was like, wow, you know, so many people like, I met my wife at the store in 98. I can't remember. I totally remember that. Just like things like that. I think it like people who felt connected to the store really got it. But no matter what, it was fun to put something out there and get that kind of feedback that was positive. And so that's the thing. And, you know, and, and it came out with my name on it, which to me, reminded me of being in a band. It was that sort of like performative attention getting ego thing, if I'm being completely honest, which is fun. <laughs> I think a lot of people like. So, so it kind of ticked a lot of boxes at once. And then I started dating my now wife and she was super supportive. And there was a point at which, you know, she knew the story about my dad and my racial identity and all this stuff. And she was like, look, you know, the stuff you're writing about the store and your bands and everything, that's fun. But what you really need to do is write about your father and your racial identity, because that's what you're really interested in. And that's what people will be really interested in. That was definitely the catalyst for like, okay, so I guess I need to put myself out there more. So I started doing that and I think took another class and focused more on that stuff. And that turned into like some other things that I published. 
which touched more on like racial identity thing. But then there's one that was kind of the one that came out in NPR's The Code Switch, which is the name of a podcast, but they also have a website. And that's a story about me doing 23andMe and finding out a lot more about my father's side of the family because I don't really know him and he's black. And uh, it sort of led to me getting this family tree that goes back to one slave in 1825 in Alabama. And I never knew any of this stuff or any of these names. And ultimately to getting in touch with a woman who I believe is the living descendant of the slave owner. And she and I became really good like email pals. So I wrote about this for NPR and that kind of led to a bunch of other stuff and long story short to a book, which includes that, but is on a much longer schedule, I guess. Wow. What a story. What have you learned or what's changed about your life now that you're writing? Do you have a different perspective on maybe your relationship with your father or your past? What do you think writing has given you as far as benefiting your life? I don't know if it's a benefit or a curse, but I think I pay a lot closer attention to everything that happens to me and to every moment and to everything that everyone says. My brain is naturally doing it, but it's a memoir. And thing I'm writing is about something that's either happening to me or that's something I've been involved in or something I've surrounded or, yeah, I mean, I've probably published 10 or 15 things now. It's not a ton and there's this book coming, but every one of those is about a specific moment and it's me trying to describe it and what it was and what it felt like. So I think it's put me in a place where now I'm paying a lot more attention to what everything looks and feels and smells like. It's annoying sometimes. I wonder if I could write about that. <laughs> Personally, I think when you are writing and you have that sort of heightened awareness, it does bring a sort of vividness to life. Every day, and this sounds really cheesy, but it is a gift. I mean, we're here, we have the opportunity to do something with it. Creativity, I know, is part of it in some way. In our relationships with music or writing or building a company or building a family or whatever it is. And to me, it just brings that extra little kind of spice and awareness to each moment. When you think about your life, that's really what you have. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I definitely, even though it annoys me sometimes, I view it as a very positive thing. When you think about writing and music, they're both creative. Are there similarities? Do you think about them differently? Did you do a lot of creating music? Like, did you write songs? That's the thing. Not, yeah, no, not really. Okay. I mean, I felt like a real utility guy in music. I mean, that's, you know, often the drummer's role in a band is like the singer or whoever writes the songs and you play along to it. Yeah, I was never a writer. I mean, even in when I, the bands I played guitar in in college, Chris Rafith, the bass player, wrote most of that music. It's funny because he and Luke, the singer, were, I think, the real creative part of that band. And Jason, the drummer, and I were not. And Luke's a doctor. Chris is a dentist. Jason and I both work in the music business. <laughs> so it's <laughs> hilarious that the there two like go. utility guys are the ones who stayed in music. But I still find it, and this all ties back to the sort of business and entrepreneurship thing where I mean, especially because I work for a record company and the way that we roll out albums and everyone probably knows this, you know, when your favorite band puts out a new record, you get a single and a video and then you get the second single and the video and then maybe you get the third single and a video and then finally the album comes out and then the tour happens. And, you know, it's like this, it's a campaign. That's what we call it. And so I've really, in my head, from that perspective, see the writing as a parallel to music. When I started publishing these things and had a few of them, I realized as and then was starting to I think finally admitted to myself that I was working on a book because I was getting sort of enough stuff and it was starting to feel cohesive and I could see the arc kind of. I was like, okay, I think I'm working on a book. And, and I realized one day, I was like, here's what's happening. 
I've released a few singles and I'm working on my album and it's totally still what it is to me. I'm just releasing a lot of singles <laughs> and they won't all be on the album, but it's the same concept where you have these moments, you release something, something happens, you're trying to build your profile and build up to this one thing. And then once that comes out, I'll probably do that same kind of thing again. Yeah. Or doors will open or you'll go in some new direction. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your routine or your approach to writing and being creative? Is there a certain time of the day you do it or is there a certain approach? For me, it's the writing stuff is definitely morning. My wife and I are both morning people, I think, meaning like she wakes up even earlier, but I can easily wake up at like six or seven these days. And yeah, I'm at my best as far as the writing, like on a weekend from seven to 12. That's when I'll get the most stuff done. I can do if it's like, oh, I need to go revisit that piece or revisit that chapter and tweak it a little bit. I can do that later. But to me, that's less creative. That's more just like administrative work almost. But the actual writing stuff kind of has to be daylight, generally early coffee, no distractions. I mean, it's been hard in COVID. I mean, at least obviously you can do it anywhere at home. But I used to go sit in the cafe for a couple hours or sit in this place called the Brooklyn Historical Society, which is sort of this beautiful museum that's in lots of movies that was around the corner from our old place. So I'd go there. Used to love to write on flights, could get so much done on a flight knowing that I wasn't online. But yeah, generally morning and need to not have distractions and have to have music. There's something about writing on an airplane, writing as in, you know, not writing it, but pen and paper or getting your computer out and writing because you're not distracted. You can tell people that you might not be connected for a few hours. And so you might as well just not be connected. I'll email the office and be like, flying might not be connected and then just not be. I had a guest on recently. She's culturally Jewish and she observes that a technical Shabbat. She wrote a book called 24 <laughs> 6, Unplugging One Day a Week. And she said she's very creative on that day and does Great a lot name. of writing. So just an idea to throw out there. 24 6. 24 6, yep. Genius. I want to tie this back around to business too. You've got this book coming out, the music industry. As you're writing this book, you still have a day job. You've got a very high powered job. Sounds like you're writing on the weekends. You've got a lot going on. And the music industry is changing too. So can you talk a little bit about the music industry with maybe with COVID, not having live events, how music's produced these days? Because you probably have to reinvent your business as you're going along while you're writing the book. Right, right. I mean, I think record companies, especially bigger record companies, not necessarily by size, but record companies who have a catalog. 40s existed for 40 years, so there are tons and tons of albums. And generally, the way record companies work is you spend money on new records. It costs money to put out a record. You have to hire people to do things and you have to pay for whatever, travel and the band and lots of stuff. But you hopefully make money on the albums that are 5, 10, 20, 30 years old because they've made money over time as they keep selling or streaming or whatever it is. So we've been lucky because we have a huge catalog of things that people listen to and people are listening a lot during lockdown. So we're not in terrible shape. And I think a lot of labels are fortunate like us where it's okay. And it seems like it's going to be okay. Bands are certainly, you know, especially artists who really make their money touring, which is a lot of artists, those people are in, in a hard place. And that's been tough. That doesn't affect us directly. Of course, we've tried to help and support, but you know, a lot of artists are taking the time to make music because it's easier than ever to record at home or have home studios or whatever. So I think there's going to be a lot. There already has been a lot more music this year and then it'll probably continue next year. But yeah, I mean, my job hasn't changed that much this year, except it's just so much less fun. I mean, I have a job and our bands are doing okay. And 
I can't complain, but you know, so much of it is about travel and shows specifically seeing live music, which is still so fun and which I never get sick of. And the last show I saw was in March, which is crazy. Well, in closing, I wanted to ask you about just advice for people that want to get more creative. It could be music, it could be writing, it could be the marketing plan for their business. If you want to stand out, you've got to have something unique and creative. Do you have any advice in that area or how people can kind of channel that? I feel like I've been lucky because I kind of always knew what it was, not specifically what it was I wanted to do, but I, I knew it was something to do with music and probably the business end of music. And so it was, I can't say it was easy for me, but at least there was always this focus. So every move I made was always like, well, that's not music. So I know I shouldn't be doing that. Well, that is music. So I know I should be doing that. So I think it's, I've had a relatively easy time making the choices or the decisions along the way where I think people who maybe are searching more don't have the luxury. Like they might be feeling like, well, I don't know, maybe I should do that. It seems like a good opportunity. But I do think that everyone does have this sort of internal, whatever radar or sensor that you have to pay attention to. And some people are great at that and some people aren't. And some people are certainly convinced by outside sources, money can be one where it's like, you know, that I could have gotten a job that probably paid okay out of college, but instead I worked at a temp agency or a record store because I knew the real job would have prevented me from doing the thing that I wanted to do. So I think, and you know, that's easier to do when you're 21. As you get older, it gets harder to chase these creative pursuits because you might have a family or a mortgage or, you know, all the things that stop you from doing what you want. But I think it's important to just really try to hone in on that radar and what it's telling you, at least to figure out what you want to do and then try to figure out how to get there. Well, this has really been a great conversation, Nabil. Where can people find out more about your writing and what you're up to? Yeah, well, thanks, John. This has been super fun. There's a website that's just my full name. That's nabilayers.com, N-A-B-I-L-A-Y-E-R-S. That's pretty much just devoted to the writing stuff. So that has links to all the pieces and we'll continue to do so. Otherwise, the label I work for is 4AD, number four, letter A, letter D, and Google works too. And when is this book coming out and who's publishing it? It's with Viking Penguin. I think we're looking at early 2022. It's still a ways off, but to me, it suddenly feels close and I'm really excited. I am too. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. I have to have you back on the show when that happens. Oh, that'd be great. Nabil, thanks for being on The Good Life. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.